Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman. And today I am truly excited to have with me Dr. Jody Foster. Jody is a clinical professor of psychiatry and assistant dean for professionalism. I don't really know what that is, but we'll get to that. In the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She is chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Pennsylvania Hospital and chair of the Penn Medicine Academy of Master Clinicians. She also, and this was kind of what impressed the hell out of me, she also attained her MBA with a concentration in finance from the Wharton School. Dr. Foster, Jody, is a noted educator and received numerous awards for clinical excellence and teaching. She has been named a top doc by the Philadelphia Magazine and has consulted not only with healthcare, but also with legal and venture capital firms, corporate entities, education, the arts, and major league sports. Jody, welcome. Thank you so much for coming aboard with me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so let's get into your book. Let's start there with, the, <laughs> I like this, the schmuck in my office, how to deal effectively with difficult people at work. Because this is one of the questions I often get with people in the workforce. So let me be honest with you. The question is, how do I deal with the asshole at work? Yeah. Or the angry or deceitful or attention-grabbing coworker? Yeah, that's that's really kind of the, has become a, a big part of my life's work. I mean, a yeah. big part of it is that, um, and this is why I called the book "The Schmuck in My Office," which was, you know, much to my uh, uh, mother's distress. But um, <laughs> the the fact of the matter is that um, I get calls all the time about this stuff, and in I, I got to tell you, eighty five percent of the cases, the phone calls start with. I should have called you before. Sometimes I should have called you 10 years ago. And, you know, yeah. I have this schmuck in my office. I have this asshole in my department. I have this jerk I'm working with. And the thing is that um, it, it's, it's really quite interesting. The data on this shows that if someone is behaving in a way that you find objectionable and you give them feedback, you say, you know, I don't like, I, I don't like how you're acting. Your behavior is causing problems around here or whatever it is. In 80% of cases, that feedback alone is going to get them to stop because in that many cases, people don't necessarily know that they're being perceived that way. And what we do as people, because we're so conflict averse, is instead of going right to the person and saying, I can't believe what you just did. You can't do that here. What we do is we go to the water cooler or we go to, you know, or we, or we go to text. We, we talk about it. We talk around it, but we don't talk to the person. And in so doing, we're not giving the person a message that their behavior is problematic. And, and in fact, what we're doing is we are um, uh, quietly giving them the message that their behavior is just fine. And so mm -hmm. when we don't give people feedback, they don't necessarily know that they're supposed to change that behavior because they're probably behaving this way at home with their friends, with their you know relationships. And they probably have behaved this way in other workplaces. And if they've never been told before that it's a problem in your area, how are they going to know to stop? So shame on us if we don't tell the asshole that they're being an asshole, because they're probably not really an asshole. They're probably just not aware. And so, you know, well, it, it makes me think, think of, I, I think it's 
Tasha Yurik's uh, work on self-awareness. And I think, and I'm going to script the numbers here a little bit, but when she asked people about their own self-awareness, I think it's something really high, like 90% of us think we're self-aware. And then when she goes and digs in to see who's really self-aware, it's about like 18%. But that kind of maps on to what you're saying of 80% of people, if they're notified, hey, you can't act like this, they go, oh my gosh, like, I'm sorry, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Right. I mean, but think about it, you know, by the time we're adults, we've kind of, we're formed where our personalities are, are generally formed. We, we kind of are who we are. We behave in the same ways and the same patterns over and over again. And if it's been adapted for us, if it's always worked for us, if we have, you know, a, a rich life with, you know, friends and family and, 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 and workplaces that have been okay, why would we stop and say, you know, Hey, what's objectionable about my behavior? Cause it seems like things are going fine. So until we know that it's a problem, we're not going to do anything about it. So why did you get into this particular area? Do you have a personal story that you can share about the asshole at work? Maybe it's not the asshole. I don't know. Uh, Why was your mom concerned about using the word schmuck? Oh, she just thought it was crass. I mean, it is crass. It's, you know, I wanted to write a book and call it Stop Being Your Brain's Bitch. And my mom said the same thing. You can't use the word bitch. I was like, wait, (laughs) Right. But you understand um, it too. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did I get into it? So uh, it, my clinical career has been on uh, locked, very psychotic adult inpatient units. So I've always... Um, that, that maps right onto the workplace. Exactly. So I have always, always dealt with people in some form of behavioral discontrol. And I also have always believed that if you limit yourself to one population, you're really going to become tunnel visioned. And so it's always been very important to me to treat a full spectrum of cases, be it a spectrum of diagnoses, but also a a spectrum of functionality of individuals. So uh, an average workday for me, my entire career would be, I would see, you know, a, a very decompensated ill, seriously mentally ill patient on an inpatient unit in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I might be doing psychotherapy of some sort with, with a CEO. And so I've always been kind of, um, um, very invested in that spectrum. And I've also been very interested in people who, who lose control, people who have trouble managing control of their affects and, and, and their interactions. And your earlier point was true. It's people are people, no matter what walk of life they're in. And the behavior is exactly the same. The behavior of an adult person acting out is identical to the behavior of a five-year-old acting out <laughs> and the behavior of, I, of I love you, know, you Jody. And the behavior of what looks, you know, problematic in, in, in the mental health arena also looks problematic in someone who's otherwise, you know, uh, supposedly very high functioning. So I've always been yeah. interested in that. Um, but fortunately for me, and I guess my career, um, in 2008, the joint commission on hospital, uh, uh, accreditation, put out what's called what was called a sentinel statement that disruptive physician behavior was actually a patient quality and safety issue. And, you know, and if you think about it, if you have, if you're trying to do your work and somebody's standing over you and screaming at you and telling you you're an idiot, it's, it's much harder to function at your, at your best. Yeah. And, and there have been medical errors and mistakes as a result of this behavior. And so there was a, a call to hospitals nationally to come up with a, 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 uh, a modus operandi for intervening with these things. And when I went to Wharton, um, I actually had come up with a package to evaluate um, uh, members of management teams for venture capital companies, because venture capital has always been great 
great at doing due diligence around, you know, the company, but not really great at thinking about the people they were investing in. So uh-huh. I, um, I was, I was uh, starting a company doing that um, at the precise moment that the tech bubble burst. So um, that, that didn't kind of become a full company. And, and at the same time I was offered my chairmanship. So it kind of took me on a different path. But once the joint commission made this statement, um, a whole new niche opened up doing this uh, interventional work with quote unquote disruptive physicians. And that became a much broader uh, piece of work because there are, um, you know, people having conflicts with people everywhere all the time, every day. I, I love the, uh, the term disruptive physicians. It's so polite. <laughs> and it, it, it's actually I, no I and it's, politically correct. You're not allowed to say because it's 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 you know sounds a little nasty. So you have to say um, uh, physicians evidencing behaviors that undermine a culture of of safety and quality. It's better <laughs> than narcissists. Well, they're, they, um, sorry, they're we can't say that parcel. either. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, it's it's funny to me because I didn't realize what your book was on when I did your radio show on Sirius XM, Help Wanted, and. I kind of laughed when I found out, I was like, wait, you were asking me about anger in the workplace and you're an expert. Um, So what are some of the typical behaviors at work that lead to difficulty or quote disruption? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, and, and I think this is why you and I have hit it off so nicely so far is because one of the, one of the primary manifestations. So far, wait, is there more to tell me? (laughs) Is there are you going to drop a bomb in this show? It'll be I'm great not, for ratings. No, I promise. <laughs> I'm um, one of the one of the primary manifestations of of conflict in the workplace is displays of anger. You know, be it and and yeah. it, obviously there's spectrum. You know, there's there's uh, passive aggressive, snarky sarcasm, and then there's you know overt nastiness, and then there's yelling, and then there's throwing things, and then there's assault. You know, I mean, there's there's a whole spectrum of ways. But you know. Um, uh, from uh, from my standpoint, uh, outside of displays of anger, dis- uh, evidencing, dis- you know, making statements that are disparaging or meant to humiliate um, are other major ways that that um, people can be really disruptive um, in the, in the workplace. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many. You know, conflict comes in essentially any shape and size. And so there's so many, many, many different ways that people can have conflicts. The, the only organizational um, kind of uh, 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 conception that, that I have been able to come up with, which ended up being the basis of the book, is that after doing this for a long time, it, it seems that there are just certain personality types that get into more of these conflicts than other other types. But you can't possibly organize like, how to think about disruptive behavior by, let's say, the concept of anger, because as you know, better mm-hmm. than anybody else, you know, anybody can get angry. Anger is a normal emotion. So right. um, you can't, you know, say, oh, well, uh, we have to eradicate anger in the workplace because then we would be, it would be like eradicating happiness or eradicating, you know, um, uh, any emotion. No, I, I totally agree with your point. And I have this secretive fantasy of doing you know, a big organization doing a 360 degree assessment on all managers and up and firing the bottom 10%, the most angry people in the workplace and seeing how that would impact culture. 
Well, I do have to say that um, people who are coming and bringing anger to the table are obviously going to be more likely to have angry explosions when there are conflicts. And, you know, um, uh, actually, I'm going to be uh, engaging in a study with uh, a group at Vanderbilt that, that, you know, does this work um, uh, and does a lot of research in this area. And I mean, my personal belief on the matter is that it kind of has to do with what your emotional menu is. Like, I would never, ever, Mm. I know this about myself, I would never go to work and I would never scream at anyone. And I would never hit anyone. Let's say those two things, right? It's just not on my menu. It's just not on, it's not within the construct of who I am. And so when someone would be hiring me into their organization, they may not know this, but, but what they are getting is someone who is not at risk for kind of flying off the handle or, you know, or, or becoming physically out of control, you know, and, and I, I think you can make these assessments in a number of different arenas. But um, like I said, it just, you know, if it's not on the menu. And so if you have your bottom 10% of people who are the angriest, you, you're probably talking about the people who can't help but evidence their anger all the time. And right. yeah, those are going to be the ones at risk for a tremendous amount of conflict. And yeah, and I would say that those people are creating much more. I, it, there's got to be like an 80 20 rule to this that, you know, the 20% of the population that is the angriest is creating 80% of the problems. I would guess. I don't have anything to back that up, but. I mean, I have my own, you know, 80 20 construct, which is I just told you that, you know, in 80% of cases, when you tell somebody that their behavior is a problem, that they just stop. And by the way, even if they can't kind of just stop because they're so used to acting that way. If they do this thing again in six months, it's so much easier to say, hey, you know, John, do you, you know, you're doing that thing again that we talked about six months ago. And you'll go, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I'm just so used to doing it. As right. opposed to waiting 10 years. And then when I say, John, you're doing this thing, and you'd be like, yeah, I've been doing it my whole life. What are you talking about? So it, it, it always helps to give feedback. But in the world of 80-20, that leaves 20% of people, right? So what about them? And... um and, and I would say to that, that about, I don't know, 10, 10 to 15% of people, when you give them this feedback about their behavior, again, they'll feel sort of that embarrassment and, and, ugh, but, but they might say something to the effect of, ugh, you know, I, I know I do this thing and I know it's a problem, but I just really don't know how to stop doing it. And I love those people because those are the people we can bring resources to. The desire to change is, you know, almost all you need to be able to make an intervention in some of these things. But there's going to be that last five to 10% of people who you go up to them and you say, you know, John, I don't like your behavior. And you say, and, and, and you say back to me, Oh yeah, I know I act like that. And I'm going to keep acting like that because I, I yeah. love the way I love that. And screw you. I'm going to it keep doing it. It works for me. It works for me. And this is, this is how I understand it. And, and with those people, really the only, you know, uh, only intervention is to set limits and say, okay, well, you can go on being you, but you can't be you like, like that here. And if you want to be here, you can't do it. You can't do that. Thing. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, one of the areas of research that I'm really excited about recently is the research doing, that's being done by Jared Clifton at UPenn on primal world beliefs. And he's come up with 26, 28 world, their beliefs that we have about the world at large, right? Like to what extent do you see the world as safe versus dangerous? To what extent do you see the world as good versus bad, alive versus 
not alive. Um, to what extent, and, and I, he, he won't go this far, but I like to break it down in three layers of world, people, self. So what are the core beliefs you have about the world, about people in general, and about yourself? And I'm curious, what number would you put on, or, or to what extent do you see people as safe versus dangerous? Me personally? Yeah. I mean, personally, I, I, I think that people are inherently good and that uh, people are inherently driven towards self-betterment. And that's the premise for which I do this work. Oh, um, no. I mean, of course, there are going to be some uh, some occasional cases, which, of course, are going to take up most of everyone's time. But but I think there are, of course, a few, you know, a few cases where there's some pathology, where there's real, you know, yeah. a really nefarious um, what what percent would you put on that? I would put 1% on that. I mean, one to 2%. Okay. I, I, I honestly think that, um, you know, even the people who are, who, who we might call the, the, the worst actors, you know, whatever that means, if you always can get underneath the dynamic of why they're acting that way, there's usually something pretty benign underneath it. And if you can get your arms around it, it's, it's, you know, everybody, I honestly, I do believe that everybody wants to do better. What about psychopaths and sociopaths? I mean, and, and kind well, of that age old question of, can we, can we teach them empathy, for example? Yeah. I mean, so that would be the a percentage of people with a certain pathology okay. that, that would be problematic. And I think that, that that's the, that's the exact kind of percentage that I'm talking about. Okay. Just curious. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, they exist. Do we fi- <laughs> well, and, and because, the, and the reason I think that's such an important core belief, it, it affects everything. It affects every interaction we have. And I've talked mm-hmm. to a lot of depressed people who are like, oh, you know, like to what extent do you think people are trustworthy versus untrustworthy? And they're like, oh yeah, most people are untrustworthy or most people are dangerous or most people are out to get you. Those are not functional beliefs for a happy, thriving, successful life. Right. I mean, look, I, I mean, you just heard my percentages on them. I grew up in the Lower East Side of New York City. I mean, if anyone's going to not trust people, you'd think it would be me. But at the end of the day, yeah. I, 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 I do think that people are inherently good. And that informs the, the way I approach people who are having conflicts uh-huh. at work. I, I don't come with to it with the assumption that there's malice, because I really don't believe that in, in the great lion's share of cases that there is malice. Well, and, and I think that's another fundamental core belief. And I think the idea is assume positive intent. Unless mm-hmm. you know otherwise, which is right. extremely rare, right. you know, we have to keep reminding ourselves, oh yeah, assume positive intent, assume positive intent. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. Um, because otherwise we spin stories in our head that can go mm-hmm. all over the place. Mm-hmm. So go speak to a little bit, uh, or speak a little bit to the um, different problematic personalities in the workplace, if you would. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I always do this with some trepidation because I, I don't want people to um, misinterpret what I'm saying as uh, uh, saying, go back to work and think about the problematic people around you and then diagnose them and, you know, give them a label. And um, at the same gotcha. time, at the same time, there's tremendous benefit to kind of bucketing people into certain dynamics and to certain groupings, because like I said, people tend to behave the same ways over and over and over again. And so, you know, taking this from the standpoint of, I don't know, like when you go to buy a newspaper from the newspaper guy and he says, have a great day. Thank you so much. And you walk away saying, that was a nice guy. And you put him in the nice guy bucket. That's what I'm talking about. But so again, after, you know, so many years, like decades of doing this and hearing 
the conflictual stories over and over and over again, the stories tend to start to run together into themes. And um, again, this is the world according to me, but in, in the world according to me, um, the themes break out to about 10 different types. And again, I'm not saying that people fall neatly into any one of these types or buckets because we don't. I mean, you know, I myself might fall into two or three different types easily. Um, and these by no means are all the types of people in the world. I'm talking about the types of people who seem to be more at risk for getting involved in conflicts at work. Um, and again, I want to stress before I even talk about any of these types that I don't think these people are mentally ill. These are people who just mm -hmm. have personality traits, and these are the dominant traits and the dominant dynamics that have been adapted for them in their lives, and that's what they're bringing to the table. Okay, long introduction, and I apologize. But No, um, not at all. So, so the 10 types are, um, and I'm, I'm getting old, so I'm not sure I'm going to remember all 10 of them off the top of my head. But, no, we don't need um, all 10. The, the, top, the, the, the top three are, um, I, and I've given them names that are not psychiatric to drive this point home, what I would call narcissus, the Venus flytrap, and uh, the swindler. So, and these three are what I would call the seductive cluster, because these are people who are charismatic and they draw you in, and there's this great promise, but you can't see the nefarious underbelly that will eventually bring the situation down. The next grouping is a grouping of one, um, and what I would personally call the most annoying cluster, because such people have tortured me in my career tremendously. Mm -hmm. This is the bean counter, sort of the micromanaging, obsessive, uh, detail oriented, can't see the forest for the trees type person who drives people just nuts with their, with their control. Uh, the next three are, um, people who might have some sort of cognitive challenge. So for my groups would be the distracted, um, Mr. Hyde and the lost. The distracted is like the nutty professor type with the 10 foot high piles of paper on their desk who just can't close the deal, can't finish a task. Um, Mr. Hyde is someone who might be having substance issues because as we know, substances mm. can mimic any psychiatric, uh, uh, situation. And, you know, when people come to work intoxicated or post intoxication, they get into a lot of conflict. And then the lost is someone who might be having some cognitive issue, like, uh, you know, maybe, uh, perhaps ideally is, is ill or on a medication that's making them, uh, have some cognitive, uh, loss temporarily but you know more concerningly it might be somebody who's who's you know beginning toward a, a, a dementing process uh and they start to forget things and and they can get into conflicts as they're either trying to cover up over their uh deficits or or um um others are angry at them and then the final three are what i would call the the weird or odd cluster um and that would be the robotic um the uh the suspicious and the i can't remember what the last one I, I can't remember but it was um um just uh sort of an oddity an uh, a, a, an odd character um and the uh the robotic might be someone who just doesn't have interpersonal nuance someone who wants to have relationships but kind of doesn't know how to and some, someone we might colloquially say is on the spectrum but isn't really on the spectrum just doesn't have nuance um right. and and the uh the suspicious is someone who has just a conspiratorial outlook on on the world and thinks everyone's out to get them and is very kind of prickly you have to walk on eggshells around them because they they always kind of that, that group back. seems to be growing exponentially lately <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I, I think that what's gone on in the world has has uh, uh, created a bit more of that, no doubt. Um, yeah. Huh. And then the last one is just people who have sort of magical beliefs about things. But in the workplace, in a, in a high-functioning workplace situation, you're probably mostly going to find uh, that your conflicts are with the narcissist type, the bean counter type. Those are going to be the top two. Um, you might have some conflicts with the uh, uh, Venus flytrap character. That's usually... It's more commonly a female character, someone who, if you saw Fatal Attraction, it's the sort of person who draws you in, but then kind of, you know, flips into into um, some profound negativity. Um, if you're in um, kind of a, a, a detail-oriented workplace and you have a distracted character, that can cause a lot of trouble. But I'm telling you, um, <coughs> the, the egocentric, insecure character and the controlling micromanager are the two far and away most common um characters well it's, it's interesting to me you know you mentioned the bean counter sorry to interrupt um yeah. but you mentioned the bean counter and it, it makes me think of you know one of the universal anger triggers is being stopped and you know prior i thought you know like i've had clients get really mad i had a client that was in italy walking on a crowded street and there was older people in front of him and he couldn't get around them and the, they their pace of walking slowed him or stopped him. And he was furious about this. And, and then, you know, traffic being stopped in traffic. Yeah. But yeah. I think the other thing about it is bureaucracy. And oh, so when yes. you say bean counter, my mind oh, goes yes. to bureaucracy and well, you haven't filled out the 42 forms correctly. Yes. yes. So you're going to have to go back and do those again, or you didn't bring your birth certificate along with the urine sample. Yes. And you're so right. You're so right. And, and, and also just, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the essential dynamic and the being counter character is just a, a terrified fear of losing control, but we can't, yeah. but we can't control the world. We can't control the vicissitudes of life. So that's why the being counter just tries to control you, <laughs> you know, the person, the people that work around, yeah, them. whatever and, he can and, or she can. And, and in the world of bureaucracy, there's such a terrifying fear of being wrong and making a mistake that they would rather hold something up in bureaucracy or whatever forever than to you know they'd yeah. rather hold something up forever in ambivalence than to do something that they deem was wrong well and it strikes me that those and for some reason i'm thinking hr i think there's a, a big risk aversion in these people like to play it safe and play by the rules yes. and keep my job oh my is much more desirable than taking a yeah. risk and potentially improving the process. Yes. But also potentially failing too. Yes. Yes. And I would say that, that, that this particular type of character is probably the most overpromoted of all of them because, you know, you, you'll have a visionary CEO who says, I want to be an idea person. So I need a detail person to do my operations, but that's really the worst thing to say because they can't do the operations because they're so singularly focused that they don't have a good operational overview and they, and things just fall by the wayside left and right. And, and you're right. People are driven insane by being held up in the bureau and the associated bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the bureaucracy is, is a frustrating one for me personally. Um, and I, I like thinking about it though, is just, okay, wait, what's the trigger here? Am I, do I feel like I'm being stopped? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, let me work with that. Um, and, and so let's go to Narcissus a little bit, because that's the one that comes to my mind when we talk about difficult personalities at work. Yeah. Um, and it, interestingly, when I asked you that question about 
you know, to what extent do you see people as safe versus dangerous or good versus bad or honest versus dishonest? You said about 1%, 2%. Do you, you don't think that the narcissist, narcissist personality types in the workplace are, um, inherently or purposefully deceitful? No, not necessarily at all. And if they are deceitful, okay. then I'd, you know, be more concerned for some sort of shred of, of sociopathy. I don't think that narcissism um, should include deceit as part of its uh, a core characteristic. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that at all. I think the core characteristic is is the dichotomy between profound insecurity and um, a need to sort of. Um, make oneself bigger than one is to kind of compensate for that insecurity. So, so just for the listeners, sociopathy means that you've got a characteristic or characteristics as a sociopath. The sociopathy is someone who, who, who uh, knowingly breaks rules and laws. Someone who, yeah. who, you know, um, is, is knowingly engaged in, in rule breaking activity. So what would you say is the overlap between sociopaths and narcissists? Um, I, I would say just, just as with all of, of personality, you will have mixes and matches of people who have, um, you know, traits of a number of different personality types that form who they are. And this is what makes each one of us, you know, different. You know, it, the, the wonderful thing about people is that we each have, you know, texture and, and nuance that makes us different from one another. So I might be narcissistic and a little sociopathic, or I might be narcissistic, but also really seductive and, and, and kind of draw people in, but, but ultimately only care about myself. I might be, you know, a, a uh, suspicious character, but also a little criminal in my, in my, um, dealings. So, I mean, the fun, thing about this for someone like me is that you know it, this is this is a hodgepodge mix and match and what you do is you just want to sort of zero in on the the parts of the personality that are causing trouble and then figure out how to address those parts that are causing trouble while preserving the parts that are really positive but jody you didn't answer my question my mind needs certainty my my mind needs numbers my numbers mind of needs people control. who are narcissistic and sociopathic. <laughs> Percentages. Yeah, I'm just, I, I, I I'm just possibly tell you what percentage. I wish I could. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think I wonder about like, you know, COVID and how it's shaken up the whole framework of reality for like the bean counters, for example, that those people that desperately need the control or the sense yeah. of control and COVID has shattered that for so many people. Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, we as, we as people just have such a terrible time with uncertainty in general, but you're right. I mean, for the, for, I mean, look at the, the, the exponential rise in, in anxiety and anxiety disorders that we're seeing in the past nearly two years. And then you take all the people who were anxious before any of this started and you add this in and those people are having the real problems. This is why, you know, the mental health field is, is, is getting absolutely oversaturated. Yes, yeah, I'm reading. I'm reading articles about burnout and therapists, and just everyone's sure. you know maxed out. There's waiting yeah. lines, waiting lists. What What are your what What are the most current numbers that you've seen of that exponential growth of depression and or anxiety pre COVID to now? You're, you are a numbers man. I can see that. And I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't. Berkeley have... drilled this into me. It's in my DNA at this point. 
I mean, you know, functionally, I'm a, I'm a clinician on the ground. So I, you know, I, I think about the numbers that I see and who's coming my way, but I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily expert on the national trends. What I can tell you is that there are national trends that the increase in depression and anxiety is, is, I mean, they're calling it the mental health pandemic and Mm -hmm. that, you know, every psychiatric center practice, everything like that, even though we've been able to, you know, move uh, more towards telemedicine and, 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 and improve access that way, the wait lists are still outrageous. Almost everyone, you know, when I'm trying to refer a patient locally, almost everybody is full. And it's, you know, it, this is a real problem. We have to figure out how to, how to rise to this, to this access need. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's what well, the problem is that we had a certain population of people who already had, you know, pre-existing depression and, and, and anxiety that we were kind of already um, aware of. And then the pandemic comes and there's a whole new population of people who never had these symptoms before who are now bringing them to the table. And again, in my work with disruptive people, same situation. We had, you know, the people who were our, our known people having conflict at work that we, you know, maybe were aware of or were waiting for something to happen. And, and of course, they've had a little bit harder time during the pandemic, to say the least. But we have now a host of new people who never brought this behavior to the workplace before, and they can't help it because our thresholds are just shot. Yeah. What's yeah, I, I feel like everyone's, I mean... Their buckets, their buckets of negative emotion or stressors have just gone and they're full and they don't have, or if they have some tools to deal with it, those tools are depleted. Some don't have any tools. Um, and I, I've just seen more people in crisis in the last year than I've seen in ever. Yeah. And and, and I, I read a quote from a, psychologist in, I think it was New York city. And she said, I believe I'm going to spend the rest of my career dealing with the fallout from this pandemic. Interesting. And I thought, I mean, I hadn't thought of it that far out, like 20 years from now, we might still be dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wish I had something wonderful to say. I don't, it's just a terrible, terrible yeah. time. And it behooves us to do everything we can to try to increase our access to Number one, actual services, and number two, just sort of elevating the education, you know, as you've done by putting some, you know, your information, uh, making your information publicly available. I mean, um, a lot of people are able to kind of hunt down resources and learn for themselves and help themselves. And this is a great time to kind of do as much as you can in terms of self care and self help because. Um, but that was going to be my help. next question is how are you doing on self care? I'm doing um, quite well on self-care, actually. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 33 years into my job at Penn, um, sort of thinking about um, what I want to do in, in my retirement. And the pandemic has actually um, taken me out of the hospital um, more days than not. So I've, I'm doing more remotely. Um, so f- for me, I've actually had a little bit more flexibility in, in my career than I've had before and the opportunity to um, you know, um, uh, work at some, some different settings and, and things like that. Um, I have a 15 year old son who brings me nothing but pleasure. Um, pretty much. All wow. The time. Can I have one of those? <laughs> and I'm just, wondering, how did you get so lucky? 
I, I don't know how I got so lucky, but I did. And, um, <laughs> And, and so I've, you know, I, I've actually, you know, for me, I've been trying to focus on the positives, which is that, you know, I, I, I can, I can, uh, have a little bit more control of my time. I can take a walk outside in the sunshine when I need to. Um, I can, yeah. I can exercise with more regularity. I, you know, I'm trying to, I'm, uh, in terms of self care, I'm trying to focus on the positive things that I've been able to inject and I, I have a little more time with my son. You know, I'm trying to, uh, uh, think about the things that I've been able to inject into my life as a result of this pandemic that I didn't have before, that I didn't have as much of before. And I'm trying to focus on gratitude. And I I love the answer. I I think it's just a critical question because I think we all need to focus more on self-care these days. How has self-care changed for you at this point in your career versus the beginning of your career or when you were younger? Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, as, as a, as a younger person, I was, you know, relatively nakedly ambitious and self-care was just kind of working and working and working and getting, you know, getting to an ill-defined goal as long as it seemed lofty. Um, uh, as, as my life has, um, there's probably more information than you need, but as that, as my life has progressed, I've actually lost, uh, two of my brothers, both before the age of 60. I've lost both of my parents. And yeah, I mean, of course, I'm sorry as well, but I have to tell you that, you know, if, if my first brother had not passed away when he was just 42, um, I, I was, I would have been afraid of having a child before that. You know, I, I, I wasn't quite ready as a, I didn't know what it was going to do to my body. I didn't know if I was going to be a good mom, you know, all the things that, that, you know, yeah. make up the neurotic person that I am. And, um, and my brother's death and, and seeing my parents sort of suffer through the loss of a child, I, I desperately wanted to bring life back to my family and um, it, wow. it helped me to override my fears of becoming a mother. And so on the one hand, I mean, obviously I would give anything to have my brother back, but without my brother's loss, I wouldn't have my little boy. Well, he's a big boy now. And, um, and if I'd known the joys of having our child, I would have had five of them. If I'd known them before I was, you know, the age I was when I had him. So, yeah. um, you know, that's kind of how it's been for me. Well, and thank you for sharing that. I, the reason I asked the question is I think so many of us neglect self-care at that younger age, 20s, maybe 30s. And then we, we realize at some point, like, wow, this is really important. Right. And I just think it's an interesting theme in life because I think probably like you, I was raised to believe that to, I was supposed to take care of others. Like, it's, you leave the world a better place, you know, you help out other people and to take care of yourself is selfish. It, it, you know, you, it's interesting. I mean, I spoke so much that I forgot the original question that you asked, which is, you know, how do I take care of myself? Now you're right. As a younger person, I, I was focused on what I was going to be able to do to contribute to the world. And then after I started to lose my family and start to really question, you know, what is life? I started to think about, well, what can I do to make my life happy? And what can I do to make my, to make myself feel better and to enjoy the time that I have here? Um, and it's been a, it's been an important paradigm shift. Not that I've obviously stopped doing things in my career because I haven't, but I've brought much more kindness to the job and much more kindness to trying to help, you know, the younger, the younger, uh, crew grow up with, with, uh, a little bit more sense of, of, uh, the holistic perspective on, um, a career and a life and taking care of. Yeah. And, and again, beautifully put, and it makes me think of that positive psychology 
truism that happiness isn't about the destination. It's about enjoying the journey. And I think when we're younger, we get so goal oriented. And the problem with that is that hedonic treadmill phenomenon where you get, we achieve the goal and you're like, "Mm, okay, that's cool. What's next? And it's, and then I I remember that feeling like, it was yesterday. I mean, you achieve this goal that you've been completely preoccupied with, and then you just feel almost emptiness. You know, well, where's my next yeah. goal? And that's yeah. not. And you, you know, savor it for about three seconds. Exactly. So it makes you happy or proud or a, a sense of achievement for, you know, seconds. Then and then it's you're like, not enough. Okay, it's what's my enough. next huge goal? Right. Like, I'm going to get well, a PhD again, and, and, or an and MBA. That's like, and that's one of the core kind of conflicts in, in the narcissist character is this, you know, um, uh, in this effort to sort of build one's sense of, 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 uh, uh, ego security is, is to sort of, sort of imagine that there's limitless potential and to just keep thinking about what else can I do? What else can I do? What else can I do to prove that I'm adequate, to prove that I'm, that I, that I am all that. And it's a terrible way to live. It's, it's a very hard way to live. But that's what it, it, it told me that on my tea bag just this morning, you know, the fortune <laughs> that is printed on the uh-huh. tea bag. It, it said something about, um, you know, the only thing that can limit you is yourself. So believe that, you know, you're limitless. I'm like, that just sounds exhausting. Yeah. But I mean, but it's, it's an example of the fact that we are trying to educate ourselves and the people around us to, to take better care of ourselves. Can you imagine that what you and I are yeah. were kids seeing something like that on anything, let alone a tea bag? You wouldn't have oh, I would have eaten that up. Right. <laughs> but, but I would have been like, there. Oh yeah, I can do anything. Oh yeah. 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 And then, I mean, I figured that out at, you know, 17, 18, I was like, I'm trying to do everything, but I'm not doing anything particularly well. And I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I was like, where's the room for happiness in this idea of success? And, and I, to me, I'm just a big proponent of happiness and meaning. Um, and I, I think fortunately our, our work is quite meaningful. I think that's something that's buoyed me through some tough times in my life. Um, and so that's been helpful. So before we wrap up, the, the other question that I wanted to ask you is what's your understanding of self-love? How do you make sense of that concept? It's kind of vague and nebulous. Well, it's a hard concept because, you know, um, I mean, uh, it's, it's always so much easier to think about, you know, the things that you don't love about yourself you know, the, the pounds that you could lose and the exercise you should be doing. And the, Are you, you saying know, I need to lose weight? Jody. <laughs> 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 and that's an example of personalization folks. Sorry. Um, I, uh, I think that self-love is acceptance. I mean, I think that, you know, it's at, at some point um, to be able to say, okay, you know, this is what I've got. This is what I've been dealt. Um, this is what I've done to make the most of what I have. And I'm proud of that. And, um, here I am and, and this is how it's going to be. So let's, let's, let's get comfortable with it because, you know, I'm going to be with me until the minute I die. So, I mean, being in conflict with me is a very uncomfortable way to, to be a uh, way to live. And so yeah. spending time on learning how to just accept um, to kind of be able to pinpoint the things that I would like to change about myself and then to do the work to change those things about myself. But, but to, to your point, to be happy with the things that are okay, that are okay mm-hmm. enough, you know, um, you, you, you've, I'm sure heard of, um, in your psychology studies, the concept, the Winnicottian concept of the good enough mother, you know, which takes a lot of mm-hmm. pressure off mothering. You know, you don't have to be a perfect mother. You just have to be a good enough mother and it's good enough. 
And I think if we apply that kind of thinking to ourselves, if we're good enough and we feel good enough, then I think that's for me, self-love. Well, and that's actually a mantra. I don't know if it's a mantra, but I think of it as a mantra from positive psychology, settle for good enough. Whether good enough is 80% or 90% or 98%, you got to allow some room to be human and less than perfect. Um, I also like the idea of radical acceptance, as you were saying, that to radically accept that this is how it is right now. And that's okay. Even if it's painful, that's okay. Right. Right. Um, And I also like the idea that you mentioned of kind of, I think we need to find ways to counterbalance that negativity bias of the mind that, you know, left untrained, we naturally overfocus on negative stuff. And so, like you mentioned gratitude earlier, I think that the more we can train our mind to focus on what we have going well or right for us, yeah. that's a, that's a big part as well. Um, but it but it's, it's a training. sticky question. It does it's, require yeah. training. As you and said, and I, I like the idea that self-love is a process that's never ending. It's not, again, not a destination. Like I'm not right. like, Oh yeah, I've done it. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I'm in love. No, it's not like that. I've arrived. <laughs> and, and so, and to that end, I think we need frequent reminders to take good care of ourselves, to speak to ourselves with kindness, to radically accept ourselves. I mean, all that stuff I think is yeah. um, really, really important work. Right. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. You really do have to train yourself to think that way. And, to, and, and, and I mean, it obviously helps to see that it makes you feel better. So, um, that, that of course can be, uh, um, uh, a motivator. Yeah. It's interesting. I was reading, um, I think Martin Seligman's new book, actually, I don't know which book it was, but you know, that idea of learned helplessness mm-hmm. Sure. where they were shocking the dogs and they taught the dogs to be helpless that they couldn't, yeah. nothing they could do could escape the shocks would help them escape yeah. the shocks. More recently, uh, 20, 30 years later, they found out that that helplessness isn't learned it's actually our default state that we are born thinking we are helpless and we have to learn that we can help ourselves. I thought that was kind of a, it seems so simple, but it's a radical shift in thinking at some level. I guess that's so. I mean, um, when you say it like that, I of course think immediately um, back to my son as a little baby and, and babies are completely helpless. And of course they have to learn how to help themselves. And that's, that's, that's the work of life. You know, and some people learn it better well, than others. And others. Well, I was going to say, think how many people yeah. stay stuck in that victim mentality, yeah. which is kind of learned helplessness, which is depression yeah. or pessimism and um, never perhaps evolve out of it or past it. Yeah. Yeah. Just interesting. Yeah. Um, well, we have to wrap up now and uh, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, let's see. Um, I guess the, um, one thing I would want, uh, people to remember is that conflicts happen. Don't shy away from conflicts. Um, and then when you have a conflict, there are just a couple of things that you should keep in mind. The first thing being, um, uh, did, did something disruptive or conflictual really happen? Or am I just sort of bringing something to the table? Am I bringing my own stuff to the table? Like John, if you and I are standing next to each other and we witness an interaction, I may say, oh, that was fine. And you may say, that was horrifying. So you have to really assess what you're bringing to the table. Um, the, the next thing is to always put a name on what's bothering you about what someone's doing. Because if, if you're just dealing in the world of feelings, you're not going to be able to kind of necessarily know what you need to address. Um, I think it's always important to empathize with people who are behaving in a way that we don't, uh, you know, 
feel good about, you know, maybe something's going on with them right now. Maybe, maybe, um, they, they have a situation or a dynamic and, and taking an empathic posture is always, um, a, a kinder, better way to approach conflict. And then when you're going to interact and get feedback with somebody, be concise, be direct, don't wait. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think those are the important things that I would want listeners to take home. Yeah. And I would add to that, try to do it calmly. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. But going back to, um, you said name it or label it. Yeah. Would you, is that label the emotion you're feeling? Is that label, label like, oh, the, this guy might be a narcissist? No, 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 no. What I mean is that like, um, uh, let's say you say something snarky to me in this part podcast, you know, uh, rather than like getting off and saying, Oh, John is really, you know, I don't, I don't like that, but not know why. To be able to say, John, you know, when you said so-and-so, you, you, you said it in such a way that made me feel this. Put a name to what what happened, okay. what the behavior was, because um, that's really going to help you know how to intervene with it. So let me just check with you. Did I say anything snarky? Because I was no, kind of playing no. around a few times. So. <laughs> no, of course not. I just want to make not sure I didn't make you no, feel no, any no, you know, no. uncomfortable emotions. That wasn't nope. the point. Nope, not at <laughs> okay. all. Okay. Well, and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the friendship and the support. Um, And just for those of you listening, the book is The Schmuck in My Office, How to Deal Effectively with Difficult People at Work. Easy for me to say. And is that available on Amazon, Target, I'm assuming most most online retailers. Yep. So thank you very much, Jody, and have a wonderful holiday. Same to you. Great talking to you. All right. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you liked it, if you were moved by this episode, please feel free to like, rate, review. If you didn't like it, that's okay. You don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 